In Psalm 63, verses 1 and 2, David is crying with longing to see God. We'll consider the text, then we'll look a bit more in depth at the doctrine presented to us, and then by grace apply it to our hearts. So consider the text with me, this cry of longing to see God. First, we see the one that's longed for, and it's God. He says, O God, thou art my God. He goes on to speak of this God with thou and thee and thy seven times, constantly calling on God. This word God in Hebrew emphasizes his power and his glory, but also that God is triune. And notice it's not just God. David is longing for the one he says, thou art my God. Not just his creator, not just the God who is above all things, but the God who by the covenant of grace in Jesus Christ has become his God. Through the Lord Jesus, David knows God as his own. And this intimacy that he has with God, it stirs up his longing for him. We then see the longing for this God in two things. David says that he is seeking God early. Early will I seek thee. This verb of seeking early is related to the noun dawn. And the idea is, you, God, are the first thing that I seek when I wake up. You are what I begin my day with and what I long for then throughout the day. You are my first thought. But then also, he says, my soul is thirsting. And parallel with that, my flesh longeth for thee. It paints, it pines, it faints. We understand this. When your soul is not well, your flesh feels it, doesn't it? Body and soul are sympathetic. And so it is with David here. So he's seeking, he's thirsting and longing, but he has no satisfaction. Not here, at least, not on earth. Because he speaks of the whole earth here in saying that it is a dry and thirsty land, literally without water. There's no water there. David has lived on this earth. He's seen all its pleasures and delights. He's currently in the wilderness of Judah. But David would say this even in his own palace, that this is a dry and a thirsty land. That all things in this earth, considered in themselves, are what Jeremiah says, broken cisterns, which can hold no water. Not water that can satisfy our souls. But David does know that there is satisfaction to be found. And that's why he's longing for God. So we see not only the one longed for in the longing, but then the satisfaction. David wants to quench his thirst. But this thirst can't be quenched with the mouth. David expects that his thirst will be quenched, so to speak, with his eyes. He says in verse 2, to see thy power and thy glory. So as I have seen thee in the sanctuary, we have here two visions that David has or longs for. In the first, we see the vision of the future. He says, to see thy power and the glory. 
This is what I don't have. It's what I long to have. I want to see your power and glory, O God. We heard Moses ask this in our reading, that the people of Israel had done great evil with the golden calf, and God justly threatened to be done with them. Now, through Moses' intercession, God said that he would send an angel with them, but that's not enough for Moses. Moses says, you must go with us, God. And as we heard in what we read, God relents and is willing to go, and yet Moses needs assurance. And so he says, show me thy glory. And when he sees the glory, then on that basis, he asks again that God would go with him. And God did. He showed him his glory, not his face, but his back parts, hiding Moses so that he would not be overwhelmed and destroyed, hiding him in that cleft of the rock, which is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. David wants, just like Moses, to see his power and glory. How? How can a creature see God, especially when God himself says, no man can see my face and live? Well, there is a sense in which David and we can see God with the eyes of our body. It's in this, that we observe him in his works. So Romans 1.20 says that by the things God has made, his eternal power and Godhead, his deity, are evident, are very clearly perceived, so that anyone who dies, even never having heard the gospel, will be without excuse, because he might not have had the Bible, but he had the sun rising every day. He had all the things that he needed in this life, God's kindness to him. He saw God in that sense, and so can we. But especially David longs for the sight with his soul. Our soul has eyes, in a sense, like our body. And the way you use the eyes of your soul is by thinking, by contemplating. Now, the second commandment forbids us from making imaginary pictures of God. We are not to try to capture God in some sort of physical image. That would insult his glory because he's infinite and invisible. But nonetheless, we are to think about him. And God wants us to think about him. He teaches us to know him. And we're to use our soul and its eyes, so to speak, to see him. We'll have more on that. But we can also ask where. Where does David want to see God's power and glory? Well, he's already told us he doesn't expect to see it, not as he desires, in the dry and thirsty land. It's not here on earth. It's not even, as we'll see in a moment, in the sanctuary where, in a sense, he has already seen God. David's desire will only be fulfilled in heaven. In the better country, Hebrews 11. That's where the throne of God is. That's where his power and glory are most evident, as we saw on display in Revelation 4 and 5. David wants to be there, beholding God as it were, face to face. But his hope of that future vision, vision is stirred by his memory of a past vision. David has seen God, he says, so as I have seen thee or beheld thee in the earthly sanctuary. This is speaking of the tabernacle and of particularly its first room, the holy place, where the table and the bread of the presence and the candelabra, the candlestick were and the altar of incense to approach once a year into the room beyond it, the Holy of Holies. Now, David as a king did not go into this place. He was not a priest. 
but he would see the priest bringing the offerings and going into the door. And he could use his imagination, but he could also exercise faith in God's word, just as we do when we read about the tabernacle. But David being present there had seen God in a sense, because God had appointed these pictures as a means so that his people could have communion with Christ. Christ who was shown to them in the priesthood and in the sacrifices and in the blood. David saw God in that sense, but it wasn't enough. He wanted not just the picture, the copy, as Hebrews 8 says, he wants the heavenly reality. And so he's crying with longing to see God. Let's summarize this in a doctrine, a teaching from this text. The greatest longing of a true believer is for the heavenly vision of God. The greatest longing of a true believer is for the heavenly vision of God. Now let's consider more in depth what this vision is. We've already seen it can be, in a sense, the sight of the eyes. And if you think of this heaven that David longs for, if there are sights for the eyes on earth, how much more will there be there? You might not think about this much, but heaven is, in fact, a physical place. It's a material place. We know that in part because there are material bodies there now, at the least Enoch and Elijah and, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. They have a place for their feet to stand on. It is material. We're told something of the kind of material that's in heaven in the book of Revelation. And it's given to us in words that defy all our earthly experiences. Streets of gold, clear as glass. Gates of a single pearl, 12 of them. Can you even explain that? God is using some things we know on this earth to tell us of something that we can't know. Not yet, that no eye has seen. There will be wonderful marvels in heaven, but put aside the gold and the gates. There's one physical sight that will be better than all of them. It's the sight of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. To see him whom our soul has loved. If you're a Christian, I know your heart longs for this. To see his hands pierced for you. See his eyes of love for you, to embrace him, to kiss him, to see Christ in the flesh. What a joy that will be. But even in heaven, it's like on earth. The physical sights are only a beginning and only a help for the greater sight in our greater part, which is not our body, but our soul. In our soul, we are more like God than we are in our body. Because God, like our soul, is a spirit, and that's better. God is a spirit, and in our spirit we can see him, not with our physical eyes, but with our spiritual eyes. And in heaven there is promised to every believer an immediate vision, an ability with the soul to see God in a way that you don't now. Now, it won't be absolutely immediate. It's still true in heaven, no man shall see my face and live. If you imagine God as Niagara Falls, you can't stand under it without being drowned. But God will graciously give us a great cup in order to have Niagara Falls and to drink it, so to speak. Whereas here today, we just have a few rivers in the desert and a few tastes now and then. 
Relatively, though, it'll be like seeing him face to face. That's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. Now we see through a glass darkly, in an enigma, literally, but then face to face. And it will be a sight of the whole soul. Now, you need to understand this about heaven in part so you can understand what it is to know God now. Because though we know God first with our mind, it's not only with our mind. The mind is the first faculty of the soul. In the things the soul does, thinking is the most important. It's the first. We have to know something before we can do anything else with it. And it's true with God. We ought to know him in our intellect by his truth. This is what Christ says is eternal life. To know thee, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, him thou hast sent. You can read in Psalm 27, verse 4, that this is the longing of the psalmist there. He wants to behold the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. What a feast for our mind it will be to have all of our errors taken away and to be able to contemplate the truth of God without any trouble from sin in a way much more deep and awesome and glorious than we know now. But never the mind alone. Not in heaven. Not here. Not if you're a true Christian. Because with the knowledge of God, if you know Him rightly, will always come the will and the affections. Not just knowing the truth about God, but loving the truth that you've known. And even more, loving that God whom the truth has taught you of. To long for Him, to choose Him above all other things, to make the perfectly rational and reasonable choice of God above all creatures, so that you would even say of heaven with the psalmist, Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there's none upon earth that I desire beside thee. A whole soul contemplating with love the whole God. That is what the believer will have in heaven. That is what Christians are saved for. And the scripture tells us abundantly that this will be the case. This is always what the psalmist is longing for. We sang it in Psalm 42, as the deer for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. The hope of the psalmist in Psalm 17 is, I will behold thy face in righteousness. Christ tells us that the angels behold God's face. He says of the little ones of his flock that their angels, the ones appointed to guard them, they always see their, the Father's face in glory. But he promises, it's true for every saint, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Let's apply this then, this doctrine that the greatest longing of a true believer is for the heavenly vision of God. First, for our repentance. If this is what the Christian life is all about, both on earth and in heaven, and if the desire of the Christian soul is to long for this in heaven to see God, then you must repent of your failure to see. 
and your failure to long for him. I bring you today an eye test. God has appointed me, as it were, a spiritual optometrist, and I want to test your eyes. How is your spiritual vision? There is a possibility of a total failure of sight. Not just possibility. A certainty for all who have not come to know Christ. By nature, you and I are blind. Completely unable, as Christ has to teach Nicodemus, the teacher in Israel, unable to see the kingdom of God if he's not born again. The people who can't see God, they think like this, Psalm 10, 4, all their thoughts are there is no God. God never comes before the eyes of their mind. His works are before their eyeballs every day, and yet it never goes beyond their optic nerve. There's nothing going on here that speak that has a thought of God. They are, as Paul speaks in Philippians 3.19, those who mind earthly things. Their God is their belly, he says, and their end is destruction. The book of Job speaks of these. They say, depart from me to God. They say, we do not desire the knowledge of thy ways. Job 21.24. Is this you? I can't see your thoughts. But is this how the eyes of your mind work? They'll look at anything but God. If you're crying with those men in Job, depart from me. I warn you, God will. If you don't want the knowledge of his ways, you won't have it. You'll never see God. But we need to get deeper because it's not just those extremes of total eye failure that make a man spiritually blind. There's a spiritual blindness that appears to be sight and that men can see certain things, but they don't see right. And it's because they are, they have extreme cross-eyed vision. They're trying, which you can never do, to take one eyeball and put it over there and to put the other one on that side. And everything is blurry. Christ speaks of this. Matthew 6, verse 22. In the Sermon on the Mount, he speaks of the eye. Verse 22 of chapter 6. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. Notice this word single. It may not be in your translation, but it's literal translation of the Greek. It's looking at one thing. You have one focus, and that's God. If your eye is single, your whole body is going to be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee, this organ God gave you to see light, if it itself is darkness, how great is that darkness? He then goes on to explain in clearer terms. Verse 24, no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. So let me be clear to you. You cannot look at God 
and look at mammon. You can't behold him and behold the things of earth. You cannot have your eyes longing for anything short of God and God at the same time. Many fool themselves in this way. They think that they can enjoy glances at heaven and glances at the world. And they can have it both ways. My friend, it's impossible. Don't fool yourself. If you don't have both eyes fixed on God, you don't belong to Him. He's not your God. And you must repent and turn and come to Christ that God would be your God in truth. But I speak also to those whose eyes are fixed on God, true Christians, and yet you often find the tug of other things. It's like they drag your eyes away and you're always tempted to glance at something else. And sometimes you do. You take your eyes off God. A terrible example is in David. Remember in 2 Samuel 11, his physical eyes glanced for a moment on a woman bathing and the eyes of his body took away the eyes of his soul. He stopped looking at God and he fell deep into sin, into adultery, into murder. If this is you, but like David, you come back. Like David, you seek the Lord. Then you too, like David, can have what Nathan said. Your sins are forgiven you. God knows our eyes wander. And He's willing to forgive wandering eyes. But the question is, my friend, will you put your eyes back on Christ? Will you turn them from the sin that has distracted them? And I want to help you a little bit more with this. If you've diagnosed your eyes and know that you have trouble with your spiritual vision, I want to help you remedy it. First, you need to think about what it is that takes your eyes away. What are these competing objects of vision? They can be, on the one hand, things that are in themselves sinful. For example, pornography. Looking at people committing sin and taking delight in sin is most clearly sinful. But it's not often so clear. In fact, most of the things our eyes are taken away by are things that are good in themselves. They have a place and time, but we are looking at them too much, too frequently, with too much longing. The way you can tell what those things are is, ask yourself, what things, in terms of our text, do I seek early? What things does my flesh long for? David says it's God. It ought to be. If it's anything else, you know your vision problem. And you know now how to repent. But then you need to convince yourself that those other things that you know you struggle with and that you look at and you shouldn't, that they're not worth your time. You need to convince yourself of their vanity. Remember Solomon after his lifetime of looking at everything but God. Many times, though a wise man, his eyes went dark. 
and he was taken away by all the things of earth. But in repentance, he comes back and says, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. If you know that about these things your eyes struggle with, then it'll help you stop looking at them. They're not worth a glance, truly. But then you do need to actively turn your eyes from them. And in that, a help for you is Psalm 119, verse 37. It gives in a short verse all the help you need to set your eyes right. Psalm 119, verse 37. Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity and quicken thou me in thy way. Pray that. Second application after repenting of our failure to see God is to stir up your longing to see him. Now, the things I've just spoken of, meditating on the vanity of the creatures, that's a help. That can help you by contrast and long for God. But especially you should meditate on why God is worth looking at. Meditate on God's beauty. His beauty in himself. We heard already in a prayer today the words of Sorter Catechism question 4. I encourage you to study this great resource. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Turn those words around in your mind and and plumb the depths then of God. If you really consider all those things mean, consider their contrasts with the creatures, that they have some being, some holiness, some of them. They have some power, but none of them are infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in those good things. If you can see that in God, it will stir your longing for him. Consider God's persons, how all three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, are this one infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God. So that when we behold the Godhead in the Father, and in the Son, and in the Holy Ghost, it's as if that infinity of perfection is tripled right before our eyes. But then especially contemplate him in his works. The works above all, as we saw in Revelation 5, of his sending the Lamb of God, the mediator. There are whole hymns written in the Bible to the beauty of this Savior. Psalm 45, for example, or the Song of Solomon has many of them. From chapter 5 of that book, my beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among 10,000. Make your soul say that of Christ, and it will stir up your longing for him and consider all his other works as well. But not, don't just consider God's beauty in himself. Consider how that beauty may be yours. We can call this his sufficiency. That for all your needs, this is enough. There is enough in God to satisfy your eyes now and forever. Think of how God meets the needs of his poor sinning creatures. We by nature are guilty 
we have Adam's condemnation and our own hanging over our heads, ready to bring us down to hell. And God says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. By nature, we are impotent, unable to do anything spiritually good. And the people who know that most are those who by grace do some spiritual good because now we have a struggle. We have a fight. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? I thank God through Christ our Lord because those that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. I've just given you two examples. Go home and multiply them of how through his promises, this God is enough for all your needs. That will help you see his beauty and to long to see him. If you're in the desert and struggling to get to the oasis, if you can see just one palm tree afar off, that will get you moving. It'll stir you up. If you're married and you're without your wife or husband and you miss him, you take out a picture and that will stir your heart with love for your beloved who's absent. Do those things spiritually to stir your heart with longing for God. But that leads right then to the third and final application. God in his mercy has given us ways to see him now. Though the sight in heaven will be much greater, you can see God now. And you ought to. Open your eyes and cry with Moses, show me thy glory. And then use the means he's given. The chief and most important means to see God now is this. Faith. Faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, which in Isaiah is said this way in chapter 45, verse 22. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. All it takes, my friend, is a look. Now, it's simple, but it's not easy. That look requires all you are and all you have. And you must refuse then to look at anything else in the way you ought to look to Christ. Looking to him as the only savior, the only one who can help you. But if you look to Christ that way, you'll be saved. And you will see God now. Indeed, you'll see the truth of what Christ told Philip. After he said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He goes on to say, he that has seen me has seen the Father. If you want to see God, my friend, see Christ by faith. But then use that faith to see him in his ordinances. Now, ordinance just means the things that God has ordained. And he has ordained ways in which we can see him. We don't have, as in the Old Testament, an earthly tabernacle but we do have earthly ordinances that can be done in many different places, even the spare room of a house. God is willing to be seen, and in order that he might be seen, he's given these things. The word, the sacraments, prayer. 
And if you want to see God, you can by doing these things in faith. So consider this in private. If you want to see God, go home, find a quiet place, and pray. God has promised to those who pray in faith that they will see Him. Open the Word of God, which is as if a tapestry with awesome and glorious sights of God on every page. Come to this Bible in faith, but not just in private. Come in public, as we're doing now. In this sense, we are in the sanctuary, beholding God's power and glory. And never forget that that is what we do here. No matter how small and insignificant the outward circumstances might be, the preaching of the word, the singing of psalms of grace in the heart, the prayers offered up day after day, in these ways, God is willing to be seen by his people. I ask you, do you come to worship for that? When you drove here, did you say in your heart, I'm going to see God? If not, you didn't come right. That's what you ought to do here. That ought to be the greatest attraction of worship, is that in it, you might see God. And I want to help you too to understand that this is a great motivation for worshiping God in purity. So you, like I do, hold as a church to the Westminster Confession of Faith. And it has an excellent chapter on worship, chapter 21. It speaks in the first few chapters, including of prayer. But then in verse 5, it goes on to list more of the ordinances. uh, Section 5. The reading of the scriptures with godly fear. The sound preaching and conscionable hearing of the word in obedience unto God with understanding, faith, and reverence. Singing of psalms with grace in the heart as also the due administration and worthy receiving of the sacraments instituted by Christ are all parts of the ordinary religious worship of God. goes on to speak of extraordinary things like oaths and fasts. Notice how few and how simple those ordinances are. This is good, and you ought to be happy with this. We don't need to add to God's means of worship. These ordinances in their whole as a package are like a giant telescope that God has made so that you might look with the eye of faith into the eyepiece and through that telescope, see all the way into the third heaven to the throne room of God. And we ought to bless God that he made the telescope and did not give us the command to try to make it on our own. In fact, so many try. They're discontent with God's own ordinances. And it's as if they take out a screwdriver, open up that telescope, and try to fix the things inside by adding this or that or the other thing to the worship of God. But here's the problem. You open that telescope, your hands are covered with your sin, and you're going to leave big black marks on the lenses and on the mirrors. And when you close it back up and try to look at God... He won't look the same. And this is a warning to you. If you innovate in the worship of God, 
you will not see him in that worship as you ought. God will be to you less like God and sadly more like yourself. God warns the Pharisees. They've done this to the extent it's as if they took black paint and covered up the lens so they couldn't see him at all. He said, in vain do you worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. So take heed of that, my friends. The point of worship is to see God. And you ought to long to see him in the ordinances he has given in all purity. May the Lord bless us in that way. Let's pray to him. Holy God, we thank you that you have given us to see you in the preaching of the word. We do not deserve to have our eyes set upon your glory, and yet you are willing to be seen by us. By nature, we can't see you. We are totally spiritually blind. But we long now for the grace to see you more. As you, Lord, in your Son, healed so many blind men, we pray that you would heal our blindness. And those of us who can see, Lord, our sight is so dim and it's so often distracted. Would you please heal the remaining blindness and give us grace to see by faith and through your ordinances all the way to heaven. Oh, but Lord, we long that all the more you'd bring us in due time to that place that in our soul and then even with our body after the resurrection, we might behold your face in righteousness. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen.